So welcome. And so again, looking at the theme of the parami, uh, cultivating the parami, bringing into being the parami in a difficult time and trying to bring some fearlessness to living in this difficult time with the help of the parami. And so today I want to focus this morning on the wisdom. So there is one of the parami, one of the quality we can cultivate, bring it to being, experience, manifest, is wisdom. And I think that this one, this quality, in a way is very connected to meditation. But of course, it is sustained, as uh, Gina was talking yesterday, it really is helped by ethics. And of course, it's really very much helped by meditation. So in a way, you have, in a way, it's kind of like you have the three training which you find in the Eightfold Path. In a way, somebody was asking a question about the Eightfold Path and the connection with the Parami, and Gina did not have the time to look at that. But actually, in a way, the Eightfold Path often is seen as three trainings coming together. Ethics, Gina was talking about it yesterday, meditation and wisdom. And so in a way, what we can see again is that there is different quality that we'll find again in the Eightfold Path or in the Factor of Awakening or in the Brahma Vihara. So it's kind of like just different things coming together to help us on the path. And so wisdom, wisdom for me is very connected uh, with the, especially in meditation, with the aspect of meditation, which is about insight, looking deeply, what is called vipassana. And vipassana means the deeply pasana to look. And so in a way, yesterday I was talking a little bit more about kind of like in terms of the renunciation and coming back again and again. And actually we could say that that aspect of coming back again and again is more like samatha. It's more like anchoring, focusing, sometimes called concentration. I generally don't use the term concentration because it has a tendency to bring tension, but maybe more use the term of thinking of anchoring, that when we come back, we anchor. And in coming back again and again, then bring, coming back to the fullness of this moment and its connection with everything else, then also we come back to the creative functioning and then it helps us to develop calm, to develop spaciousness. And then the other aspect of the meditation, very connected to wisdom, is looking deeply, vipassana, insight, questioning, exploring. So we have to be careful of thinking of meditation as just in a way calming the mind or calming the organism. Of course, with the anchoring, this will be very helpful to bring some calming to the mind, to the organism. At the same time, we have to be careful that it depends on the condition, that sometimes the condition will not lead us to calm. But it doesn't mean that we cannot feel grounded. And then this will come more when we'll talk about tomorrow. I want to talk about equanimity. So today I want to look more at the part of the practice, which is about exploring. 
So in a way, often it's uh, said that it's using the brightness of the mind. As my teacher used to say in Korea, we need to balance equally the quality of calmness and the quality of brightness. And so in terms of wisdom, in terms of brightness, what do we do? So again, the vipassana aspect of the meditation can be done in many different ways. It can be done in questioning, it can be done through imagining, it can, it, in different tradition, in different, it's practiced in different ways. And so what I like to do today is to really look more in terms of very simple uh, vipassana, looking deeply, but I think which is so essential in terms of wisdom, in terms of compassion also, and in terms of living fiercely. And it's really looking at change. That in a way, part of the wisdom, I mean, wisdom, we think about it as kind of like, we're not talking really of wisdom as knowledge or wisdom of knowing all the sutta, though it's good to know the sutta if that's your faith. But we're talking about wisdom as experiential wisdom. So you could say experiential clarity, experiential brightness about what's going on, about in a way conditionality. And what is very strange is that change at one level, impermanence change, at one level is so obvious that you would think, well, why do I need to associate it with wisdom? So wisdom must be something so much bigger, so much kaboom, you know, like really something extraordinary. When actually wisdom, part of wisdom is knowing, but really knowing experientially, intimately change. And that's why in a way vipassana is about. And it's kind of just being aware again and again, things change. And to, in a way, exploring change. It's not that we want to look for change, but we want actually to explore change, to experience it. And why is that? Because you could say Vipassana is an antidote to generalization. You see, as an organism, as due to evolution, we have what I call this generalizing principle. We need to make quickly category, we need to kind of associate things with each other quickly to know what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, what is good, what can I eat, what can I not eat, what is poisonous or not, whatever. So no, we need to make category, we need to make kind of in a way generalization. And then from this trend, I mean, we have this very good function of making category, discrimination, generalization. Then there is these things from general, we go to permanent. This is very interesting, kind of this, this movement there is between it happens all the time. And to me, this is one of the things which is quite painful, is kind of something happened, especially something painful, and very quickly, we think it happens all the time. It doesn't mean the thing does not repeat itself. But my question would be, does it happen 24-7? Because if we say it happens all the time, it means it happens every second, every minute, every day, every week, 
every month, every year. So basically 24-7. But nothing happened. 24-7 actually. And so we get both, especially if it's unpleasant, we get this quick impression uh, because we have this strong reaction, of course, to unpleasant, to the unpleasant tonality. And so it gets amplified fast. And then it gives this kind of like kind of longer, kind of longer timing. And so that's why it's so interested, interesting in a way to really become aware of change at the micro level. So in a way we have the macro, we have the kind of like the big picture, and then you have the small picture. In terms of the big picture, it's kind of like seeing how we do always, never. And to me, actually, why I connect being aware of change with wisdom and compassion, because of course, when we talk of wisdom, in a way, we, to me, wisdom is kind of like, kind of a, and compassion is a one hand, the two side of the hand. You can't have wisdom without compassion and compassion without wisdom. The two, when we talk about wisdom in the Dharma, then on the path, it's always with compassion. And so sometimes you can have dry wisdom with that, without compassion. And sometimes you have compassion without wisdom, which can be so dangerous, actually. And so in a way, in terms of the big picture, to notice when we say always, never. And to me, I really had that insight when, when I first started to drive, I learned to drive a little later when I was 30. And I would, at the time you could still do this, now you can't, still lock the key in the car. You know, and one time I phoned my husband, you know, oh, Stephen, can you come with the other set of key? I lock the key in the car. Then second time, then third time. And third time he said, you always uh, lock the keys in the car. And I thought I had this vision that forever after, 24-7, I would kind of, you know, lock the key in the car and my marriage was finished or something. But then I thought, wait a minute, wisdom coming in, vipassana coming in. I don't do this all the time. And then what are the conditions that makes me do it, actually? And I realized that was when I had to park in a tight place. So after that, whenever I had to park in a tight place, then I went for the key first and then got out of the house. And then I never again locked the key in the car. And then Stephen did, but that's another story. So in a way, it's kind of like to be careful. Yes, it can be repetition, but it's not a kind of like repetition every second, every hour, every day, etc. And then the other thing we have to notice, and then that's why I think the sensation in the body can be very interesting in terms of, you know, when nearly living fiercely, is kind of to go in, if you have a sensation, if you have a sensation which is a little unpleasant, to go inside the sensation. So for me, for example, sometimes I get little itch because I'm a little kind of allergic, so I get little itch. And so I sit in meditation, and then here, I get this kind of, it's so itchy. And so generally, if you eat, you really want to scratch it, and, 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 and so when I sit in meditation, I don't do that. I just sit there. And then I go 
inside the heat. And what is interesting to notice then is because it feels so intense, it's unpleasant, it feels so intense, and because it feels intense, you get the impression, this is very interesting to notice, because of that sensation of intensity, immediately the assumption is this will last forever, I need to do something about it. But I stay there, and then it totally goes. But really, it totally goes. And it's so weird, because you had something which was so there, and you thought, this is going to last forever, and then it's so gone. And so in a way, part of the practice of meditation, formal meditation, which I think can be so helpful, is either with sensation, or today we will look at sound, to just, in a way, sit there, lie there, walk there, or stand there, and just be with what happens. And then go inside what happens. Because generally what we go is, you know, what's the meaning of this, and da, da, da. But to go, if it's not harmful, of course, to go into it and notice, how does it feel when it's intense? What's my assumption? And when it's gone, just that feeling, it's gone. Just experience, and that's experiencing change. And in a way, the more we experience this, the more we can remind ourselves, oh, change exists. Because to me, one of the gifts of change is the possibility of change, the potential of change. And to me, that's why this actually, this wisdom is compassionate insight, is insight leading to compassion. Because to me, this is one of the most uncompassionate things to do, to say to myself, you're always stupid or whatever, or you always do things, this, or you will never, etc., etc. And then actually, when we say this, we really fix ourselves. And we're basically saying, you cannot change. I cannot change. But what we see that, of course, we might repeat certain mistakes. We might make some mistakes, but we don't do them all the time. And they depend on condition. So when we're really understanding change, I think it's such a relief. Because in a way, even if it's light, if something is light, then it's like, oh, Okay, I just, I had this uh, interview with uh, Dan of uh, 10% and he, he wanted to look at feeling tone and relationship and then I was telling him a story and he really liked it about that. You know, in a way, wisdom is also knowing what am I experiencing? Is it light? And then I just have to wait and it will pass by itself. Is it repetitive? And then I can look into the conditions. Is it intense? And then in a way I have to accept this is intense. And how can I not amplify it? How by coming back to the breath, coming back to the sound, can I bring some space within the intensity? But it doesn't mean the intensity 
will stop. So in a way, the wisdom of change, the wisdom of knowing change, allow us to see what's going on here. And so my little story was, again, we were in town trying to get out of the parking and we were getting lost. And, you know, when you are a couple in a car and things are not going so well. So, you know, Stephen says something a little cutting. And then on the moment, he's like, oh, you know, and then generally you say something cutting back and then off it goes. And I did not. I thought, yeah, he said something unpleasant. The situation is unpleasant. We don't know where, how to read the sign. And then I thought, but this little unpleasant feeling, how long is it going to last? So I did not say anything. I just kind of observed this kind of oh, little unpleasant feeling too. And it lasted actually two red lights. And it was gone. I mean, because I did not do anything with it, like a little the each, it's gone. So in a way, wisdom helps us to see, oh, that's light. Let it go. Let it go by itself in a way by just being aware of it. Then if it's repetitive, then we can, what, what's a trigger? What's a contributing factor? And a lot of the contributing factor often is being tired, being stressed, many different things like that. And it's not just because of us. We have to be careful to see, as Gina was pointing out, condition is not just inner condition. It's in a way like the fact that we are a flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. So in a way, kind of this Vipassana is looking at change, seeing the potential for change, exploring change, and exploring our impression assumption, this is not going to pass. But knowing actually the liberation of at some point, this will pass. But then we don't know sometimes, and sometimes we have to help ourselves, possibly to make it pass more quickly, if we can, of course. It doesn't stop action. Then in a way, the other thing we look at a little bit is, because of change, things are unreliable. And because of change, in a way, there is possibility of suffering, what's called dukkha dukkha. And so in a way, dukkha dukkha is kind of mental suffering, uh, physical suffering, etc., suffering. And then, in a way, to me, knowing suffering, not to have more suffering on purpose, not at all, but living fearlessly is kind of saying, oh, this is pain, this is suffering, this is what it feels like to suffer. And then we realize that the wisdom to me of understanding suffering we realize that suffering is painful, but more than that, it's isolating. Nobody can experience our pain for us. And to me, if we really understand suffering, our own and others, then out of that arises wise compassion. Because we know what it feels like. And then the other aspect to explore, to look into, is what's called not self, but we could call it conditionality. And so in a way, it's kind of like often what happens is that we reduce ourselves to one of the components that forms us. Because one of the exploration 
is an exploration of our condition. And if we explore our conditionality, we realize we are an inner flow of condition meeting outer flow of condition. And so the problem is that at any given time, we might grasp at one condition and say, that's me. This thought is me, this sensation is me, this emotion is me, this situation is me. Doesn't mean it is not there, but in a way we cannot reduce ourselves to it. So in a way you could say that when you come back to the anchor of the breath, the body, the sound, you come back to the flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. But a lot of the time, like Gina was pointing out, we narrow and we get stuck on just one of the elements that constitute our experience. And then so if we turn it around, instead of I'm just sad, then as Gina pointed out, I am all of that meeting everyone else. Then what becomes interesting in terms of this Vipassana wisdom aspect is just asking ourselves, what does my survival depend on? That's what Gina was trying to point out yesterday with the breath, that we share the breath with everyone else, with everything that lives. So in a way, it's kind of interesting idea, you know, your air going to, I mean, if we were in the same room in the residential, now at the moment, we can't do this through the, <laughs> through the internet. But if we were in the same place, then your air would go into my lung and mine in yours. I mean, how more intimate can you be than that? And that's why we would have to open the window time to time. And so in a way, it's kind of like asking ourselves, what does my survival depend on? What are the conditions needed for my survival? And then you realize it's outside of me. Most of them outside of me. The air I breathe, the water I drink, the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the medicine I take, the shelter I live in. All this, most of us don't make it. So in a way what Dina is trying to point out again and again in such a beautiful way is our interconnection, the wisdom of experiencing our interconnection, our interdependence. And out of that, wisdom comes out, this great wisdom comes out of experiencing ourselves, not as this small, isolated, separate self, but this organism, which is connecting to all organisms and also depends on a lot of other organisms. And then from that, of course, compassion, appreciation, arising. So that's what I wanted to say in terms of wisdom, and we can talk more about different aspects during the discussion. And then briefly, I wanted to talk about the meditation I want to introduce in the guided meditation, and it's listening meditation. So in the same way, with the breath, I would not necessarily recommend focusing on the breath, anchoring on the breath if you are asthmatic. If you are tinnitus, and if where you are is very silent, I would not recommend to do listening meditation, especially if your uh, tinnitus is very strong, a kind of ringing in the ears. But if you don't have this difficulty, 
then you can do listening meditation. Again, also not everybody hearing acuity, acuity is the same. So if you, know, you can't hear very well, then possibly that also is not a meditation for you, especially if there are not many sounds. What I'm going to do is I'm going to open my window and so there might be more sound because I have double glazing, so it's very silent here. So you can hear my sounds around my street in this little village in France, or you can open your own window and then you can hear the sound around you if they're not disturbing. And for me, this is an important practice, listening, because it's, I am not controlling it. It's not personal. Most of the time, unless you are hungry, that's different. But most of the time, the sound comes from outside. It's really about listening to the music of life. And you never know what music is going to happen. A bird, a car, an engine. Yesterday, there was this sound for like about 20 minutes. And I thought, what's going on? And actually, it's just somebody helping out with the electricity outside, you know, and then you immediately think, what's wrong, what's wrong here? Well, actually it's outside. So just, so you're sitting here and the focus is not so kind of precise, but it's more opening to the sound of the world, opening to the music of life. And then you can do it in two ways. One way is that you notice your attention will generally go to the sound you hear the most. That's what happened with me and with the acuity I have in terms of hearing. So generally my attention, the sound, and then the sound goes. So I'm aware of the sound going and then my attention goes to the next sound and where it goes. And then when there is no sound, then I'm just aware of the silence. Or you could just in a way be aware of the space which in the sound happens. So it's how open you want it to be. Or if you want to have within the openness, a little specificity in terms of sound. And then what is interesting with sounds, if you can, you will know what the sound is. You know, the, I mean, immediately our computer, my computer know it's a bird, it's a car. Sometimes it's interesting, you hear a sound like yesterday, you have no idea what it is. Then you can start to see all the assumptions and the different assumptions giving different feeling tone. But just hearing the sound as sound and not speculating so much with them if possible. And not you don't need to name them, note them, only if that's useful, but otherwise just listen to the sound as a sound. And then noticing their changing nature. Some sound just come and go. And then to what we can notice a little bit with it, which can be interesting with sound is that how immediately you have a tonality. Tweet, tweet, tweet. If you hear like the sound yesterday, you can have, and so what is interesting with the little bird, tweet, tweet, tweet. oh, I hope it lasts, or oh, it comes back. And when you hear the, you, ah, please, please stop it, stop it. So just again, exploring, oh, I hear this sound. You don't have to think about it, just to know, oh, otherwise it could be just neutral. And we'll talk more about this tomorrow. So maybe just listening to the sound as sound, noticing it's coming and going. And then if a sound continues, 
noticing does it change within itself? Because that's also what is interesting. When there is something continuous, if we go inside it, a lot of the time, it will change within itself. So we can also kind of uh, look deeply into that. So that's what I would suggest uh, as one of the themes, this listening meditation for today. So now we can just stand and uh, stretch a little bit. And then I will open the window and then we'll start the guided meditation. So if we find a comfortable posture, the back is straight, the shoulders are open, a little relaxed, the back is upright. We feel as grounded as a mountain and also as open as an ocean. That will be sitting on a chair on the floor, standing, lying down. And then just opening ourselves to the sound of the world, to the music of life. Notice how we hear a sound, it impacts us. There might be a tonality with it. And then it goes. Does the tonality goes with it? Then it could become quiet, silent, listening to the silence. Possibly appreciating the silence, wanting more of it. 
Can we let it go, this silence? When another sound appears, Noticing how as long as we listen and we hear the sound, if a sound is a little continuous, we are here. Notice when the sound continues, but we don't pay attention to it. And then we don't hear it. So each sound helping us to be present, to be here. Can we bring friendliness to the listening? This is spacious listening, caring listening. We are not trying to analyze or being aware in the same degree of every single sound.
listening to sounds. Again and again, coming back to hearing. And each time we come back from being distracted, we come back to the experience of this flow of inner condition, meeting outer condition, the multiplicity of this experience. So hearing can be in the foreground, but everything else is still in the background. The thought, the sensation, the feeling. And so we come back to hearing. And we come back to the whole organism connected to its environment and to life.
noticing how pleasant sounds pass, unpleasant sounds too pass, neutral sound too pass, and so and also how our assumption about sounds can also shift, change the tonality when we hear these different sounds. It's also interesting to experience the relief when what we perceive as an unpleasant sound stops. When it was there, it might feel like it lasts forever. And then it's just gone.
and we listen to the music of life with wisdom, with compassion. And we listen to sounds, just as sounds. With as little subjectivity as possible. As little of me and mine as possible. Seeing it all as a flow of condition. Meeting each other. Connecting with each other being part of the same world, the same life.
question which actually came from the website and this was about trust. I'm wondering what you might have to say about trust. I became aware that I am not as trusting as I would like to think I am. And on fear, I find that sometime in the night I'm gripped by our knees and foreboding about our world and find it hard to shift through practice, often resorting to distraction of one kind or another. Wisdom on this point, much appreciated. So, yeah, trust and fear. Uh, this is something, I think what is interesting is that actually uh, 
we'll talk later about loving kindness on Friday. But actually, the Buddha suggested loving kindness for fear. Because there was this story in the commentary uh, that, you know, you had some monks and they were sitting in the jungle and they were not, could not meditate because they were so afraid all the time. And then the Buddha told them to do the loving kindness meditation because it would assuage their fear. And why that? Because by kind of practicing meditation, they would realize that up to a point, the world was a benign place and that actually in the jungle, there was not necessarily somebody out to get them. And they might be dangerous thing, but not all the time to the same degree. So they did not need to be afraid all the time. I mean, they might need to be careful. And so in a way, what we could look at is kind of like being careful because that's just kind of helping our survival, the survival of others. And that's why, in a way, you could say ethics trust in. Like as Gina was pointing out, you cultivate ethics for yourself and other so that you share the world in a more harmonious way. And so the Buddha was pointing out the same. You know, you don't need to be afraid before something dangerous happen. At the same time, uh, sometimes things happen and then it might break our trust. Uh, some people might do things, then it might be hard to get the trust back, though we can still be friendly and kind. And so I think it kind of like, sometimes we can be more, trust, more trusting. Some people, in a way, trust everyone in a way. And then some people might be more anxious, so it might be a little more difficult to be trusting. But again, some people might have had bad experience, which then might make them a little less trusting, a little more careful. So I think it's again back to condition. When is it that actually I trust? And when is it that actually it becomes carefulness? And when is it that it becomes fear of the fear, fear that something might happen? And then of course at night, this is some of the difficulty. If one doesn't sleep so well at night, then often at night, it's very hard to have positive thought. It's kind of very strange. You are in your bed at night, you try to meditate, and instead of kind of, you know, uh, may all being be happy and whatever thing like this, and mudita, I appreciate everybody's kind of more, but when this happened and this situation is so terrible, and, and because of the news, we have some, I mean, that's, I think we feel for people who are in pain, like, Gina pointed out, but I think we must be careful with watching the news before we go to bed because then it's kind of really, kind of really, kind of, because at one, what can we do? This is a bit the way, what can we do? And so in a way, I think to be careful to kind of have the world because at the same time, there is such goodness and each of us can do our little things to improve things in whatever way we can. And at the same time, we can recognize goodness in other people, like Gina was telling her about such goodness of her mother and her story. So in a way, I would say kind of at night, be a little careful. And I totally agree that sometimes meditation, if you, you're kind of anxious, you can't sleep, then meditation might not do it. And then I would I think it's fine to actually read a book. Personally, what I would do is read like a philosophical book and then you fall asleep. Unless you're somebody who really, 
as great philosopher, then you might need to read some other kind of book. So, you know, we kind of also we have to help ourselves, kind of self-care. So now I am moving to the question for now. Uh, then the first one. In Vedana practice, could you talk about practicing first contact? This, in a way, is what meditation is about. And I think this with uh, listening meditation, it can be interesting. Because as you sit there, you're quiet, you're not doing anything, then you can become more aware of what you might call first contact. Ah, I listen to the sound. What's the tonality of that? Or you might become aware, oh, a thought. That's what is so interesting with thought. One moment you don't have a thought, next moment a thought appears, a memory, an image, and whoops, a very definite tonality appears with the thought. So in a way, what is beautiful about meditation when we can have a formal meditation is that we have the time actually to become a little more aware of first contact, or if not of first contact, of the tonality, and then we can go back and say, oh, I have this tonality, and it's because I had this thought, or because I heard this sound, or because there was this, this sensation, or because there was this perception, because uh, the perception also comes in. Kind of, it's, it's quite complicated. It's kind of interesting how it all works out. I'll talk more about it tomorrow. So in a way, I think formal meditation is an excellent place to be aware as much as we can because things go fast and also we have tonality through the six senses so you know you can't be aware of the six senses of first contact with all of them that's why i think generally it's better to stay with one either the body either the mind either the sound because if you try to be aware of first contact of every single uh senses then it can get really too much so i would say generally say just one anchor, and then realize that sometimes you'll miss it. And that's interesting also when you miss the contact, and then you're more in the reaction to the contact, in the reaction to the tonality. In daily life, it's very interesting to, if you can, to see first contact, but that generally thing goes so far that it's a little harder. But then you can see the effect of the contact. You suddenly find yourself in a strange mood, and you think, why that? And then you realize you might have heard something or something happened or something changed. And just because of the change, then that's what the mood is now. So that's a little way we can, if you want, during the retreat, you can ex experiment a little in daily life. Sometimes to kind of, especially I would say not when it's in neutral, as I'll talk about it tomorrow, but when something seems to have shifted. Either you suddenly feel happy, or suddenly you feel a little funny. Oh. And then sometimes we can backtrack, because it's hard to pin first contact in daily life. It goes often so fast. But it's really interesting to explore. So uh, is wisdom just allowing time and space to respond instead of react? A little bit, a little bit. In a way, wisdom... I would say equanimity tomorrow is going to help us to have the ground. So I'll talk more about this tomorrow. And wisdom is kind of like saying, oh, wait a minute. 
you know, like uh, sometime, you, I don't know, I remember once I was at a committee meeting, Buddhist committee meeting, and you kind of could feel the kind of negative tonality emerge between people in the meeting. And you can, ooh, and then you feel, ooh, and then if you give in the, ooh, then you're going to be a little stuck. And then what I did was back to ground, back to wisdom, you know, what is it I can do right now to help? So then the tension can be a little dissipated and then people really can hear each other. So in a way, I think it's not the wisdom, just the wisdom by itself, because you also need the ground of the equanimity. But wisdom is really kind of bringing more clarity to what's going on. Instead of being kind of like when we react and we grasp, we limit ourselves. So Ajina was pointing out, it's opening the vision. Wisdom is really opening the vision so we can see more of the condition of what's going on. And then generally from that, I'll talk more about it tomorrow, I feel, is creative engagement is possible instead of kind of like reaction. Speak more about outer condition meeting, inner condition in relation to pain. This for me is very important. That when I was young, I mean, this was in the 70s, long ago, I'm a little old now. And I, you know, it was very kind of one of the big thing in the alternative small field then was that everything was from the mind. You know, so whatever you experience, pain, this, that, all the mind. Sort your mind out and then you won't experience physical pain. And I had that, also that framework when I was like 22 and somebody was in pain, oh, get your mind together and then the pain will go away. But as I meditated more and then I had more wisdom, I realized it's not just about the mind. It's actually more about our different inner condition, our biology, our culture, our sociology, uh, what happens to us, the different condition outside. So to be extremely careful that kind of when we experience pain, it's not just, it's first, it's not our fault. It's very strange. It's like, if we experience pain, it's like, we should not experience pain and it's our fault, but not at all. I mean, I was teaching senior for a research project and when we talk of compassion, they say, well, but when we're in pain, it's our fault. And I said, not at all. I mean, you know, so to see that pain arises because actually of change. Things break down in the biology, in the culture, in the society, in the personal. I mean, things change. Actually, in a way, you could say change, unfortunately, and suffering go together. But it also allows change, the suffering to change. I think this is very important. And so for me, it's very important to be careful to see that when we are in pain, to look at what are the conditions? What are the trigger? What is a contributing factor? How can I help myself? How can I ask help from others? How can I should remove myself from certain situations? Because compassion doesn't say compassion regardless. You have to have as much compassion for yourself as for others, as uh, Gina pointed out in terms of self-care. So I think, in terms of inner and outer condition is to be careful that often in spiritual circle, you think it's all the mind, not. It's also a lot 
outer conditions. And so, you know, what, how can we creatively engage with the inner condition, but how can we also creatively engage with the outer condition? And so wisdom helps us to see the two equally and not just to think, oh, I can just, if I'm mindful enough, then it will go away. Not necessarily. We might have to do things in the outer world definitively. So a lot of it in terms of pain is also the impact of the world, the environment on us. I wanted to share that I'm profoundly deaf in one ear and tinnitus. I have found meditation with sound has really helped me to celebrate what is left of my hearing and get to know the variation and befriend my tinnitus. Thank you, Michelle. Because yes, sometimes you can have a different relationship. So you see, this is back to assumption. This is back to perception. You can see tinnitus as this is terrible. You can see tinnitus as something which is biologic and how can I creatively engage with it? And you can see in this case that, oh, I still have some hearing left. And then I can also notice the variation again due to condition. So thank you very much telling us that. Meditating with sound has really helped me to celebrate what is left of my hearing and to get to know the variation. Thank you so much. That is wisdom. That is wisdom. I started exploring my own emotional response to the sound. A curious response. Can you recommend a way to find stillness and acceptance within this curiosity so that it doesn't overtake being present purely within the awareness of sound. Here, in a way, you have to see that perception is wisdom. We, uh, we have to be careful a little bit with this idea of bare awareness, that yes, it can be at times useful, and that's what I was saying at the end. But what I was saying was not just to be purely aware of sound, in a way, yes, I was asking you, you know, be present overly in the sound. But at the same time, it's wisdom. So it's kind of what happened to the perception when I just hear the sound? What happened if for whatever reason, the sound impact me in a specific way? And then the perception goes on, all the tonality goes on. And then how does that change? But you see, I think there is a difference with it being experiential in terms of being with the sound, with my perception of it, the tonality I experience in contact with it. So anyway, when we do formal meditation, it can be really interesting because, yeah, you have the sound by itself, but at the same time, you have the perception of it and at the same time, there is a little bit of tonality of it. What I was thinking more is about how what we do is more meaning, meaning making. I hear this sound, I like it, and this means this, or this means that. And then we go more into abstraction. But we can, with perception, actually explore with wisdom, experiencing the sound. And that's still meditation in the present. Because in the present, you are being aware of your mind, you are being aware of your sensation, you're being aware of tonality. 
So what I was pointing out is not kind of in a way going away from the sound and more like in abstraction from it instead of what is my experience right now? There is the experience of the sound, but there is also in a way the experience of the tonality. Am I making anything with it? Like I like it, I don't like it, and it means this or that, or oh, it's pleasant, oh, it's gone. So kind of, that's what I mean, like that. Uh, uh, my hearing is poor, but with a window open, the changing movement and temperature of air with compassion is a dance of life. That is a very good point, Joe. Because as I was saying, some people don't have so much acuity in terms of hearing. But then we can use another one of the sense. And you could hear kind of your sensation in that way. Kind of that's why I use a lot what I call contact. So you can just, the sensation of the air on the face, the sensation of the temperature. And so we can go for something which is more sensation, but a little less personal sensation, you could say. And then you go more for sensation of contact. And that can be interesting also in terms of, you know, temperature, air moving or not. And then we can use one of the other sense, which is as more acuity. And then, of course, in daily life, we can use, again, if we see, uh, if we are not blind or have difficulty of that nature, you can also use the sight, what you see. Uh, walking meditation is wonderful for that. What we see, the tonality, when we pass it, if we look at different aspects of, for example, a, a tree, do we look at the whole tree or at a leaf or at the trunk? So again, is what is it we're looking at? What is it we're seeing? And so we can also explore that. And again, with taste. I mean, this is again, uh, we can use taste again as, hmm, I eat, ah, what a contract, what a tonality. I chew, what happened? So in a way, we can explore all the different senses and uh, kind of use sense, which if the acuity is better, then we can use another sense and listening, of course. Thank you, Joe, for pointing that out. Then uh, I was wondering during the sound meditation, how to extend compassion to passing car. It was a neutral feeling tone, unlike birds or dogs barking, which I could relate with compassion. This is something that uh, was fun, actually, uh, doing um, with my senior. And actually here, I would not do so much compassion. I mean, you could do compassion in terms of the person is going somewhere. You see, the car is not moving by itself. So in a way, you hear the sound of the car. And generally, we're neutral or we think, oh, cars, engine, etc. We have all kind of perception around it. But in a way, the car is not moving on its own yet. I mean, at some point it might, but for now, it's not moving on its own. So inside it, you have a being, and the being is going somewhere. And so in a way, you could have compassion for that being going somewhere. And maybe that person, uh, or you could have mudita, appreciative joy. Uh, in terms of that, maybe it's a nurse uh, going somewhere, or maybe it's a worker going to repair a road or going to repair the internet, 
or thing like that. So anyway, that's a way you could kind of not just to, not to the object, because yeah, the object, compassion for the object that has less sense, but for the person within the object, then we could uh, put it there. Because when we were with my seniors, uh, once we had a session where there was lots of work outside, and so the sound was unpleasant because it was very noisy, until I pointed out, I mean, they're repairing the road, and then it will be easier to park and to come here. And then, whoops, the kind of actually the tonality shifted. Uh, I found it interesting to note how my response to the same sound varies so much at times. Uh, at times, the sound of silence feels pleasant, and at times, it feels neutral. But I remember last time I meditated in sound, I experienced it as unpleasant at a time when I was feeling lonely. Exactly. Uh, Lenny, this is so interesting with silence. Silence can have so many tonalities according to condition. I mean, when we're on a meditation retreat uh, at Gaia House, if some of you have been there, and everybody is so happy when finally it's so silent, and we can all rest in the silence, and then somebody coughs, oh, and then we all go back to the silence. And then you can feel people becoming a little attached to the silence. <laughs> so we can experience silence as so pleasant, so restful. But then you can also uh, experience the, the silence and neutral. You don't notice it. Or you can experience silence in relationship. You are with somebody and they're not saying anything and it's silent. And I mean, I had a friend. He was a master of silence. It was like kind of, you could, you could stay in silence for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and you were sitting there, oh, what do I do? Until you learn to tame that silence, and then you just sat silently with him. And then after 10 minutes, you might say something. So in a way, then the silence becomes a little kind of mm, unpleasant, or it can be restful to be with others in a different way. But <clears throat> of course, if we are feeling lonely, then the silence can feel really heavy, can feel really unpleasant. And unfortunately, I think this is what Gina was pointing out in the COVID-19 at the moment. I mean, some of us are with people and we're happy to be with people, or some of us are with people and not happy to be with people. And then some of us might be alone and there might be so much silence that what felt really wonderful to be in silence after I've been having a day of work or a day of connection, now feel a little weighty. And so in a way to notice that, how with the same object, silence, we can have such a different experience, especially in terms of tonality. And then in a way, what helps me? Like when the silence feels really unpleasant, weighty, then what kind of help helps me? You know, maybe to walk in nature, maybe to phone a friend, maybe to listen to some music. So in a way, not to necessarily have to change the feeling tone and the perception, because sometimes we cannot, because we feel a little heavy, and then we can change it in a different way. And how self-care and not self-coexist. You see, 
this is this is a thing the buddha is not saying there is no self i know a lot of the time is translated anatta as no self but the buddha is saying it's not self so basically he's saying the thought or not myself or not just myself the body is not just myself etc etc he's just saying you cannot reduce yourself to any one of the component that forms you but he doesn't say a self doesn't exist he say a kind of a temporary self exists a processual self exists and that's why in some texts he said you need to cultivate the self as a carpenter will uh, make an arrow or as a Uh, somebody who work with gold make a jewel refines it so we have to be careful self is not a bad word in buddhism but self just refer to this kind of you know processual organism the flow of inner condition meeting outer condition and so that self is made up of many different things the problem is more when you reduce yourself to any one component or if you think within yourself there is a little kernel or self which is stuck and permanent and everything gets stuck on it and that's why sometimes we think the world i mean a world what's a world i mean it's just kind of a sonorous wave you sit in meditation and you remember he said this she said this i said this you know like if it was stuck somewhere but there is no place for the world to be stuck of course we can grasp at it and stick it there so that's all it means that's all it means just talking about actually flow of condition so this flow of condition you have to take care of it i mean of course you could decide you don't want to take care of it that's a little unfortunate but now the buddha said you're alive how can you take care of this and then the question is do i take care of it egoistically selfishly 95% for me 5% for the other or do we work on reducing it to 50-50 so in a way basically self care is about that kind of 50-50 sometimes you have to take care more of yourself sometimes more of other and sometimes 50-50 so that's what it means uh, okay ah and then the sound meditation really took me outside of myself and made me realize just how dependent on outside condition i am indeed indeed you see this is what is interesting for me about the sounds is kind of kind of it makes us see meditation is not just about inner exploration the meditation is also about outer exploration and the exploration of the impact of the outer on this organism and i think that's what i like the listening meditation because it has a little bit this impersonal more connected to the environment so how self compassion relate to teaching of anatta the doctrine on not self non self again uh, steven translated that not self so it's the same it's the same i mean we are one being i mean one of the main teaching of the buddha is about suffering is about exploring suffering understanding suffering and part of that is exploring change understanding change and so in a way is to really see that anatta doesn't mean there is nobody 
doesn't mean there is no self, doesn't mean there is no one, but that actually we cannot reduce ourselves or anybody else because we do the same to others. We can reduce them to a thought, to a sensation, etc. And that I would say is very uncompassionate. So actually the teaching of self-compassion is just having compassion with this being equally to the other being, which are actually this flow of condition, inner condition being impacted by outer condition and how we too, that's what Gina was pointing out with ethics, how we too, we impact outer condition. So it's not just the outer condition impacting me, it's how me, I also impact others. And what people might realize is that actually, if we do not have self-care or self-compassion, actually, as Dina pointing out, we cannot help others so much because we stress, we tired, we, I mean, we can't. We, and it, to me, the being aware of the flow of inner and outer condition is also being aware of wisdom of our limitation. Limitation of energy, limitation of finance, limitation of time, limitation of space. And so we have to learn our limitation. And I think part of that comes with the compassion. And then we learn also the limitation of others. I think that's also part of that. And I'm sorry, and I have to stop here. And thank you very much for your meditation, your practice, your efforts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.